Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is John Huber. He's the managing partner of Sabre Capital Management. I've followed John since he wrote the old blog, Base Hit Investing. It turns out that started in 2012. Feels like it was only yesterday. I'll be talking to John right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquirers Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. You know, it's I remember when uh, Basic Investing started. Isn't that crazy? I looked it up just to see when that was. 2012. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, uh, it, it really is interesting. It's been, I guess, eight years now. So yeah. And you were, you were one of the originals. You were one of the original bloggers that I, that I used to follow, um, you know, well before, uh, I got on my own path, but yeah, it's interesting how the, the, the blogs have, uh, there's so many of them now, but, and I've kind of folded mine into the, to the, the firm's website. So I still, still publish and everything, but it's under a different, under different name, but yeah, under Saber now, but yeah, it's uh good times. When did you, um, did you set up Saber and the blog at the same time? Uh, I set up, I, I started writing in, I guess, 2012. I set up Saber in 2013. So about a year later, okay. um, I began managing money in that vehicle, um, in late, basically the beginning of 2014. So okay. I set up, I, I managed separate accounts and I started a fund on one, one The fund is what I have transitioned to, uh, recently because, um, for a couple of reasons, one was tax reasons and one was just the logistical simplicity of managing a fund versus separate accounts. So I, I, about two or three years ago, I began to merge the separate accounts into the fund. But yeah, I, I initially was just managing separate accounts, had my own capital in the fund right alongside of the separate accounts, and then uh, you know rolled those rolled those two together in, in I think 2018. And uh, so yeah, I started writing about a year before that, and really had no uh, strategy for raising money or anything. And uh, does the blog help? Did the was the, the blog? blog- the blog was a huge help. It it really was uh, sort of an unexpected um, benefit for me because, and and you know this probably from writing publicly, but you tend to self-select. So um, if people are reading your stuff and they like what you have to say, they might follow it for a while and they might reach out after a little while. And so I get calls all the time from people that say, oh, I've been reading your stuff for three years or five years or something. And then they finally, for whatever reason, decide to reach out and they want to invest. And so it's a really unexpected benefit of writing for me was just being able to attract a like-minded group of people um, to to become investors in my fund. And so, yeah, it's it's been a, it's been a good thing. I didn't have any expectations at the beginning, though, because I had no, I really had no idea what <laughs> I was pretty naive when I set it up. Um, you know, I had no idea what, uh, how I was going to raise capital. I had no strategy. I, I had a very specific goal of wanting to set up a fund and wanting to, you know, try to pursue investing and try to produce good results and everything. But my philosophy was always very simple. If I do well, I'll uh, compound my own capital, if nothing else, and then hopefully I can find some investors to, uh, to you know, hop on the ride along the way. And so that, that was sort of my approach. Why, why did you start writing in the first place? Well, I, I started writing, um, be, so I, a couple of things. One is I've always written a lot, just like personal, you know, diary or whatever, um, business diary, investing journals and so forth. So I've always found, I've always found a big benefit in writing down your ideas because it forces you to crystallize that idea. And it also forces you to, to, it, it helps you recognize flaws in your thinking, helps you clarify thought and so forth. So it's, it's been an exercise that's been really helpful for me. Um, 
And so, yeah, I, I, I've decided to, to just post, start writing publicly. Cause I thought number one, um, it's what I've always done. Writing is, is a good exercise, but number two, maybe I can connect with other people. You know, it's a, oops, it's, it's, it's a, um, you know, investing is kind of a solo sport at times. So it's nice to connect with other people and it's nice to, uh, uh, I've met a lot of friends that way. And, and so I, I, um, that was the other reason just for social reasons really. And, and to also get feedback. Right. So if you write something publicly and about a certain idea, you might get some feedback. Somebody else might recognize a flaw in your thinking. So that's been uh, that's been a, a big benefit as well. I don't always start the podcast like this, but I think we got a pretty good flow. So I just keep on going if it's all right with you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I couldn't Sorry agree more. These AirPods, these, these AirPods are, uh, are. Does the sound quality does it sound sounds, okay? Sounds fine. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with the writing. I wrote, because uh, I think it's a good exercise just to crystallize. You don't really know what you think until you write it all down. Sometimes you get to the end and realize that that doesn't make any sense. So just That one never sees the right. light of day. But then right. it's good to be able to look back after a long period of time and see what you're thinking and how that's evolved. There's a, there's a small trap though when you're writing publicly in that you, you feel this, you may feel this need to sort of maintain that consistency about an idea. You've written publicly about some of the positions that you have on your blog. So you've got Foot Locker, which seems to have been a pretty prescient. Uh, I think you wrote that about five years ago where you said, is that right? Um, yeah, I, I, so I, I think I, I think was if it you're interview? referring to, it was an interview with Forbes, with, I think Forbes. Yeah. And, and I mentioned Foot Locker as an example of a business that, yeah, I, I think it was an interview, but yeah, I think I know what you're referring to, and it, it was just a business that I, I thought faced headwinds. So, it. Um, you said it was cheap on the metrics, but you thought there were problems with the business, and so you thought, well, it looked cheap at the time. The problem would be that it would continue to deteriorate, and then it might have this, I think, waterfall or some some big drop at some stage, which has turned yeah. out to have been. It hasn't gone anywhere over that entire period of time. It's probably down. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know. So first off, sometimes you get it right and sometimes you get it wrong. And that maybe, maybe that, <laughs> that, that was, uh, that was a nice one to cherry pick. So maybe that one is right. Um, but yeah, one, one thing about that concept in general is, you know, there's been a lot of talk about value investing lately versus growth investing, for example. And what's interesting is one of the things I love about investing is there's more than one way to skin the cat. So, um, yeah, I've read your books, Toby, and and you you're a clear thinker. You have a quantitative approach, I think, and it's it's a very value um, centered approach. And there are a lot of guys. I have a lot of friends that run funds that are successful. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there's this growth. Um, you know, people people like to put style boxes around value investing and growth investing. To me, it's the value of any asset is the future cash flow that you're able to pull out of it. So that's kind of how I think about value, but. Yeah, it's interesting. The last couple of days, we we've seen sort of a, a minor resurgence in value. So we'll we'll see if that begins to to close this gap. But there have been lots think, of minor resurgences over the last decade. Yeah, need, yeah needs to hold a of, for more than a week or so. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But I think one of the problems, and you know, I brought it up to say, you know, Foot Locker kind of fits this bill. Is the problem I see with again when I say value invest, I'm using the conventional definition of low price to earnings, low price to book certain things like that. I think some of the metrics that you've espoused over the years, like enterprise value to, to pre-tax earnings and so forth are probably a better measure. But even those measures are, of course, proxies for what you think the business is going to earn in the future. So as a guidepost, you might look at those metrics and, and the, as a proxy for what those companies are going to earn going forward. But what the company earned last year is irrelevant to its value it's all about what it's going to earn this year next year year five year ten and so you know if i buy a shopping center i don't care what it earned last year i might look i'm obviously going to look at the net operating income and figure out what you know use that as a proxy for what the revenue and the and the earnings and the cash flow might look like this year and next year but you know what the last guy earned is irrelevant to me as as a new buyer of that asset so um, I think that's where value, the, the, the issue is it worked for so many years because those proxies, the 
the earnings that they earned that the companies earned last year were good proxies for what the companies earned uh, this year and next year and the year after. But I think as the economy has transitioned from a manufacturing economy to more of a services economy, and then within the last 20 years to more of an information based economy, you know, they call it the internet economy or whatever, which is sort of a subset of the services economy. We've had sort of a shift in, in, um, I, I think a shift in how number one, like price to book ratio doesn't make a lot of sense anymore because companies can now produce their earnings without, um, a lot of tangible capital. And then, and then price to earnings is much more useful, I think, but again, it's a guidepost because things change. And so I think you have to just be a forward looking investor. If you're a qualitative type investor, like I am, if you're quantitative, I think as a basket, you know, value investing always makes sense. Um, but if you're a if you're a stock picker and you're thinking about things qualitatively, um, I think you have to spend a lot more time analyzing what it's going to look like, you know, going forward. So, you know, with Foot Locker, that's an example of one that you could see problems developing with that business. And what, what did you identify the, at the time? Do you do you recall? Uh, well, with Foot Locker, one issue it was just simply that mall traffic was declining, and so. There, there's a trend towards uh, there's a trend in in many businesses towards cutting out the middleman. I think, and Foot Locker is a middleman, and so they're they're struggling for two reasons. One is it's a lot easier for a company like Nike to go direct to consumer, um, or Under Armour or any other any other brand. If you have a brand, you can go directly to the consumer in a much easier way than you used to be able to. You used to be able to need these distribution outlets stores in other words to sell your merchandise and now um those are still important they the, i don't think those are ever going to go away completely but certainly nike i mean number one nike can set up its own stores and a lot of the brands have been doing that um but also obviously the, the e-commerce and and uh, and being able to sell your your goods and your services online becomes much a much more efficient way to transact directly with the consumer. And then, you know, as I mentioned, the mall traffic was just a headwind because a lot of this in, in that particular case with Footlocker, a lot of their traffic came from from mall traffic. And mall traffic, unfortunately, for mall tenants is declining. So that was sort of a headwind that I I, I thought was one of these secular headwinds that probably isn't going to change anytime soon. You've got an interesting background in the sense that you came from real estate development uh, before you were a, an investor, a value investor. Does that help with that sort of assessment at all? Or what sort of property development were you doing before you were an investor? Yeah, I did. So I didn't really do development, but I did real estate investing. So I started, uh, I have sort of an unconventional background. I got into this um, business in a roundabout way, but I've always loved investing. So I always wanted to get into basically do what I'm doing now, running a, a partnership. Um, but and I you got the school. Buffett style partnership, 0625, right? We'll, we'll come back to that, but I just want right. to let everybody know there's no management fee. It's just a carryover hurdle. Right. Yeah. It's a no, no management fee. It's a, it's a 25% carryover, a 6% um, compounding hurdle. Um, so yeah, so I started the, I started Sabre in 2013. And before that I spent about eight or nine years in real estate investing. And we, um, and, and to back up a little bit further, I started or I went to school for journalism. And so completely unrelated to business, obviously, although it's interesting as I look back, I didn't know this at the time, but there, there are a lot of similarities between uh, the skill set that you need to be an investigative journalist and the skill set that you need to be uh, an investor. Again, at least the type of investing, the type of research that I do. So it's, it's very similar. The, 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 the uh, the the objective is different, right? You're writing a story, or you're trying to report facts as a journalist, but as an investor, you're trying to determine if a security is mispriced. So that you come to you come to uh, a different conclusion, but the effort and the research process is very similar, actually. Um, so I've always loved that aspect of investing, sort of the the, the treasure hunt uh, treasure hunt aspect of investing, and um, but. You know, sometimes in life, um, you know, timing isn't ideal. And in in school, uh, my senior year, I began studying uh, about Buffett, and I began. So, 
I've always been interested in investing. My dad was a very avid investor in his own account. He was a he was an engineer uh, for Delphi, which is a part supplier for General Motors, and and he spent his career there. And he invested actively in his own account, and he um, you know he did very well. He he was he is a very good investor, and I always thought I'd sort of take that playbook and have a career, invest my savings as more or less a hobby, just because it's something that is intellectually stimulating. It's fun. I like the process and so forth. But I began studying Buffett. I picked up a book in the library one day. And and again, this was toward, toward the end of my uh, time in school. And so I had a decision to make. I, I, got, I got very interested in investing to the point where I decided I wanted to pursue business as a career in some form. And I naively began studying Buffett's partnership letters, and it led me to Graham and Dodd and all of the classic texts that everyone talks about. And I, I say naively because I, I looked at his structure and I thought to myself, that's a really good, you know, the partnership structure that Buffett set up in the 50s, he started with 105000 bucks, and, you know, had like six or seven family members that were investors and he worked out of his house. And, you know, it was just a lifestyle that seemed appealing. And so I thought, I'd like to try to replicate that somehow. And, and again, I'm not talking about replicating his results because I don't think, uh, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if Buffett's results are replicable, but certainly the, the structure that he had, I thought that one could emulate if, um, you know, given the right conditions. So that was my goal. Um, I had no idea how I was going to get there, but I became interested in business, became interested in real estate specifically. And uh, long story short, a friend of mine and I decided to set up a small partnership in 2006, and um, and and we began. So, and this is where a lot. So, so, so timing on on the uh, career decision was not great because I had just finished school. Timing on this, I was much more fortunate. So, uh, the real estate market began to crack in 2006. I think housing starts reached. Uh, 1.8 million in January of 2006, which was the historic peak of the housing market. And fast forward a year and a half later, and housing starts were cut in half, down to 900,000. And uh, and so the foreclosure boom really began in the fall of 2006, early 2007. Of course, subprime crisis hit in 2007, and then Lehman in 2008, and you know the rest. We all know that story, but. Um, it was it was really a once in a generation type of an opportunity to buy single family housing as an asset class and then also multifamily housing. So we we my partner and I did residential uh, investing in the single family and multifamily sectors. And we would and we did things on a very small scale. So it was all our own money. We had a couple investors, but primarily a small uh, sort of very small focus group of investors and our own capital. And we would cherry pick these incredible bargains. And, and I always tell people I was like more of a Graham and Dodd investor in the real estate market um, because we would buy things. We would buy 50 cent dollars and we were able to sell them. You know, we, we'd be able to shine them up a bit and sell them um, once they were once they were stabilized. And so we would buy like we bought a 12 unit apartment building that was 50 percent occupied, you know, stabilized it, leased it up and then sold it. Um, we we did a lot of things like that on a very small scale. We we built up a small portfolio of I think twenty units at the at the peak, and that enabled us to, um, you know, that enabled me to uh, collect cash flow, finance my living expenses, and then also the most important thing for me was, um, you know, as I thought about should I go back to school and get an MBA? Should I go to Wall Street? Should I go try to work at a fund? How do I get into investing? as a business or how do I get into the field? And the overriding, as I made my pros and cons list, the overriding factor that um, that rose above everything else was uh, autonomy. And so I really, you know, I, I just didn't want to go get a job, Toby. That's what it really came no, down I to. I understand that, no, I understand that. <laughs> you know, I, I, I really value the, there's, there's two things, I, I view investing as a lifetime game and uh, you know, there's two parts of the equation. There's the economic compounding, which is the obvious objective of investing, trying to produce 
great results over time and compound your money and money compounds over time. But the other thing is, is, um, you know, getting better at your craft. So knowledge, some people call it knowledge compounding or whatever, but basically the idea that, um, you know, the more time you spend, the, the better you get. And so I, I, I actually, the most satisfaction I get out of this business is the, the process of trying to continually get better at my craft to the, you know, the craft of investing, so to speak. And so I didn't want to, at that point early on in 2005, 2006, I, I didn't really want to go work for someone else where, um, you know, I'd have to spend 70 or 80% of my time doing something that someone else directed. I, I, re I wanted to allocate the precious resource of time in the best way that I saw fit. And so I was able to, uh, I earned a lot less money in the early years, but I think of it as a sort of a longer term investment in, you know, learning, learning, um, what I wanted to learn and reading what I wanted to read and developing that skill set. So real estate was a way for me to do that. So long winded answer to a pretty simple question, but yeah, that's, that, that's what I, that's what got me from sort of there to, uh, to developing the partnership or starting the partnership, um, about eight or nine years later in 2014. When you're, um, transitioning from, Graham and Dodd style real estate and real estate is already if anybody who's looking at real estate is probably closer to the Graham and Dodd end of the spectrum but uh, when hey. I look at the p positions that you've written about publicly I don't know necessarily whether you hold these or not these are just companies that you've written about and you've written about Tencent you've written about Facebook Markel Berkshire these tend to be uh, at the growth well maybe not Berkshire so much anymore but certainly Markel and these right. other ones are at the growth you're in. So how, how's the, how do you transition? How do you evolve as an investor to get to those points? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Yeah. Because in, in, in real estate, it's the, the asset is a commodity more or less. So there's not a lot of, um, uh, the, the way to make real returns in real estate is, is either through development or through sort of an activist approach, you know, you, in the public markets, we might call it like an activist approach where again, you take an asset that's underperforming and you, you get it up to speed. So there's a, there's an operational component to real estate. If you want to make outsized returns, that's, that's how you do it. Or you, you, or you get lucky like I did and you find yourself in the midst of one of the great, the greatest, you know, bear markets in the history of real estate, which is really all that was. It was, <laughs> it was more, you know, better to be lucky than good is the saying, and that's really what it is. So I, I don't think we'll probably ever see a real estate market like that. I, I mentioned those housing starts; they, they fell all the way from, I think, one point eight million was the peak, but they dropped down to four hundred thousand in two thousand nine, and they sort of bounced along the bottom uh, for a good two or three years. And so there was a five year period where you could buy you know, banks were in this liquidation phase and you had this extreme oversupply coupled with an extreme, uh, decline in demand. And so it's, it, it took, it took years. In fact, just what's interesting about the real estate market or the housing market is just, um, late, late last year in December was the first month in 12 years that we hit, uh, a million starts on a seasonally, annualized basis. So it took 12 years to get back to what would be considered by most, you know, most real estate observers consider a million starts is sort of the equilibrium number that you need to support population growth. So if we have 330 million people and populations growing at 1%. You need, you know, 3.3, you have 3.3 million new people entering the world each year. And, 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 uh, you know, there's two or three people in a household. So you need a million new houses just to sort of keep up with that. It took a decade plus to get back to just equilibrium levels. That's how oversupplied we were. Um, so it was really a, a, a really once in a generation type opportunity. So I sort of say that as a background to say it was, it was, it was quite easy to be a Graham and Dodd investor in 2008, 2009, probably in the public markets too. I mean, I was following the public markets. I was investing my own personal capital. I hadn't, I wasn't money, running money. Uh, professionally at that time, but I, I was, you know, there were a lot of bargains around everywhere, right? In the stock market, there were bargains in the real estate market. And so it was, it was easy pickings at that time. Um, if you think about, so to answer your question on why is it different in, in the public markets um, or why is my approach different? 
I really think of investing as uh, if you think about the the very simple elements of of the transaction providing a company with capital. So if if you're you could think of it in terms of like a small company that you're investing in, a startup company or even a friend's small business or something. You know, if you invest capital into a venture, your your objective is to achieve a return on that capital. And so um, you will judge your success other than any, you know, intangible factors like helping someone out or, you know, helping your friend get started or something. Most people judge will judge their success based on uh, the return that they achieve on that capital investment. And so investing in a business is, is, is the, the point of investing is to achieve a good return on capital and the, and the same objective uh, exists inside of a business. A, a, a good business can earn high returns on capital. And so when I look at the, the stocks that have generated the most wealth over time, they tend to be there's they're they're very rarely like these bargain basement Graham and Dodd type stocks. They tend to be companies that are high quality companies that earn high returns on capital and are simply going to earn a lot more money in the future than they are now. Or if you look back in the rearview mirror, companies that have generated a lot of wealth tend to be companies whose earning power has increased dramatically over the last 10, 15, 20 years. So um so that that's a very simple observation. Good companies make good investments, and uh, you know it's something that you know your grandma in Iowa can easily understand. And so it's it's a very simple concept, um, and and it's the concept that I employ. And so I, I take a when I think about the margin of safety concept, I think the margin of safety comes in large part due to the quality of the business as much as the perceived gap between price and value at any given moment because business is dynamic. So um, if you own, if you think of yourself as a part owner of the company that you're invested in, you know, you're, you're paying that management team to act in a certain way and to adjust to changes. And we live in a world where change is much more pervasive than it was, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And so those are things you have to think about as an investor now. And I think I'm personally more comfortable investing in companies that, are good at adapting to those changes and and are good at uh, utilizing the capital that they that they employ effectively. And margin of safety comes from a company that the, the earning power is going to increase going forward. So that's that's why I prefer the companies that uh, tend to be on the growthier end of that spectrum. They tend to to grow into their uh, valuation. So it's it's they're they're much more forgiving. I found that mistakes tend to be made a lot more on on uh, valuation than it than you know if you pick the right business as Buffett says you pick the right business you're going to make a lot of money over time. So I think the mistakes I've made have been more when I've focused more on valuation, uh, the static valuation of an enterprise versus what I think the company's going to look like say three, four, five years down the road. So let's just talk about that a little bit. How are you making that assessment? How are you thinking about uh, valuation when you're buying something? Are you looking, you're, you're thinking three to five years down the road, what do I think this thing can be generating in terms of free cash flow? And that's what, what I'm looking at now. Is there some hurdle that you're you're trying to meet at any given point in time? Yeah, it, there's a hurdle that I try to meet. I mean, that I have an ob- objective in mind. So I, I kind of work backwards, sort of a reverse DCF of sorts. But yeah, the, the, the simple explanation is I think of it in terms of um, future free cash flow so uh, I, I I will I will do a DCF at times but it's typically um, very simple back of the envelope type thinking and and I try to do the analysis and then figure out what I think this company looks like in say five years um, and I think much beyond that is very difficult because things can change so rapidly but I I, I think on the rare occasions where I have an insight on what the company looks like in five years and that insight differs from the market is where the opportunities are. And those are, you know, in my case, few and far between, but they do appear once in a while. And so I, yeah, I try to look at what I think the company's going to earn three, four, five years down the road and then work backwards to determine, you know, the return that I'll get at this particular price. So, you know, you capitalize those earnings in year five and you can work what what's the what is that worth what's the company going to earn in 2025 and what does that what does that look like 
you know, what is that worth to the market? And then you can work backwards to determine, um, you know, the return that you'll get. So that's, that's, uh, that's the end game, but most, you know, 95% of the work is understanding the company, understanding the threats, figuring out, you know, how it's going to adapt to changes and risks and so forth. And so most of the work is spent really taking my time reading about companies and, and watching them over the years and observing how they, how they, how they operate and understanding their competitive advantages and, and their, and their risks. And, and then, you know, at a certain time, the market gives you an opportunity to buy things at a certain price. So the, the process for me is I create a watch list of these companies and then I just wait for, um, you know, valuations on each, on each company. And then I just wait for the market to give me a, uh, a valuation that makes sense to me. And when you find them, how much are you looking to allocate to any given company as a proportion of the portfolio? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question because I think portfolio management is a big part of the equation. So uh, I, I've always thought that the, the simple concept of, of, of value investing is easy for everyone to understand and it's very difficult to implement. Um, and again, for my type of investing, I think there's just not that many great ideas. And so I think a lot of investors have two or three or four really good ideas. And then they water those two or three or four ideas down with, you know, 15 to 20 other ideas. And that tends to dilute the value of those few uh, great ideas. And so I try to, as best as I can, eliminate the the ideas that dilute those few ideas. And so, you know, it's a long way of saying it's a concentrated portfolio. Um, in the ideal world, I'd have 20 stocks and they'd all have an equal, uh, roughly approximately equal uh, risk reward. But in the real world, it doesn't usually work that way. And so um, it tends to be a very concentrated approach. And uh, there's more than two or three or four. I typically have between five and 10 stocks in the portfolio at any given time. So it's it's quite concentrated, um, but it depends on the situation. So sometimes a starter position might be 5%. Sometimes it might be 10%. And then on the rare occasions where there's high conviction, it can be you know, upwards of 20% of the portfolio. And the the biggest positions in my portfolio tend to be the ones where I'm most convinced or mo most convicted in the risk reward. And, and, uh, I guess more importantly, the, the biggest ideas tend not to be the ones where I think might have the most upside, but have the least downside. So the, the, that's kind of how I think about position sizing, you when know, you, the wide, the, go sorry, ahead. go ahead. I, I was just going to say the wider range of outcome, you know, if you have a, if you have a stocks have a certain range of outcomes, um, I think about it like a barbell. So on the left, if you picture a barbell on the left side of the barbell, you have, um, w what I consider to be like the real defensive names, the really durable names. So the Berkshires of the world, um, the range of outcomes is quite small for some of those types of companies. Um, they're very defensive. They're very economic. Berkshire is somewhat economically sensitive, but it's a, it's a very stable business with a strong balance sheet. Um, so other companies in that list might be like waste management or something like if you're a trash collector, your, your revenues are fairly predictable in any given year. And therefore the outcomes are, are fairly narrow. Um, so I don't tend to invest a lot in those, but as you move your way down the spectrum from the left side of the barbell to the right side, at the other end of the spectrum, you have more of the cyclical companies that, um, have a wider range of outcomes. So like an oil refinery, for example, uh, doesn't control the cost of its input, doesn't control the cost of the product it sells. And therefore the margins can be all over the place. It's a very volatile business. Um, and therefore the stock price is very volatile. So I don't really invest at that end either. It's sort of the opposite of, uh, I think Tlaib's approach where he says, you know, invest at both. And I'm kind of more in the middle where I think of two categories in the middle of that barbell, which are more of the secular, uh, the secular growth businesses that have a durability to their business, um, and are, are, uh, very likely going to be doing better in say five to seven years than they are now. 
and then maybe more of the fast growers. So those are like the durable growers and the fast growers, which have more of a, a wider range of outcomes and are more economically sensitive, but have you know more upside potential possibly. So th those are sort of where I like to look for investments. Um, but the as you the bigger positions tend to be on the left side of the barbell, and the smaller positions tend to be on the right side of the barbell because of the the, the distribution of possible outcomes. The narrower the distribution of possible outcomes, the larger the position tends to be, and the wider Exi the distribution of outcomes, the, the smaller the position tends to be. That's how I think about it. Yeah, yeah I really think about it in terms of downside. So, it, I, you know, in theory, you could have you could have something with a wide possibility of outcomes at at a certain valuation, where the range of outcomes exists more on the upside, and and that could be potentially a bigger position. So it, it just obviously depends on price, uh, but that's generally how I think about it. If you size something to 20% at inception and everything goes right and the position gets very big, do you trim them back to – how are you thinking about it on a sort of continuous basis? Are you trying to trim them back to their appropriate risk weighting in the portfolio? Is it, and that, is that a valuation question or is that some other consideration? Yeah, that, that's 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 when I really struggle with Toby. It's it's um, selling has always been a, a difficult proposition because if you invest in an operating business, um, I really in an ideal world, someone was talking about this the other day, uh, like the coffee can portfolio. Where I don't know if you're familiar with that concept, but yeah. basically, if, if you're an individual investor, it's really a great way to to invest. You you pick one stock a year or one stock every so often. And you put your savings into it after you've spent a careful amount of time researching it and you put it in the coffee can, so to speak, and you forget about it. And then every year you add to it and uh, your results, uh, I think individual investors probably improve their results if they thought that way. And I think as professionals, um, and again, at least for, for my type of, of, uh, of a longer term, low turnover approach, that, that approach works. So the, the problem is, is, you know, when the stock appreciates, if you have a 20% position and, uh, and this is, you know, a first world problem to have, but if the position goes in your favor and it, it becomes a 30% position, what do you do with it? Uh, for me, I, I tend not to trim those positions unless the valuation gets, um, you know, to a level where I consider it to be significantly stretched or my future returns are going to be, you know, worse than cash, for example. Um, I, I, I always tend in the best and the bet I've learned from this because the, the best investments I have made, I've tended to trim things too early and that has reduced, unfortunately, the returns that I could have achieved. And in hindsight, when you think a stock reaches its fair value, I've often found that, you know, in hindsight, it, it still was undervalued. So I tend to think about it in terms of opportunity costs. So if the position gets to a market, what I consider to be a market return going forward or sort of an opportunity cost. Let's say the S&P is your opportunity cost. And let's say that's 7% just to put a number on it. If a stock gets to a, a level where your future returns are going to sort of match the market, I'll tend to hold those until they get to a level where I think, you know, I might actually lose money at this level. So if the stock gets overvalued, um, because again, I, I've learned that the best businesses tend to, to often look overvalued and they still are oftentimes fairly valued, or in some cases, they're still undervalued. So unless something gets egregiously overpriced, I, I try to do my best to, to not trim things. Yeah, there's a great story about Claude Shannon, who was the father of information theory. And he had an he worked at Bell Labs, had an association, I think, with MIT. And so it got to invest in a lot of companies very early on, Motorola, and so on was one of them. And he'd put the money in and then never touch it. And so by the time that he passed away, I think I think it was Motorola was like 88% of his portfolio because yeah. it had gone so well. But everything else in his portfolio had performed as well. It was just that uh, Motorola had been such a spectacular return. I, I forget the numbers, but they're just silly numbers, like 100,000% yeah. or something like that. Right. Yeah. And so that, you know, at that level, that's an extreme example. And again, it, it, it's in the coffee can. The reason you put the stock certificate in the coffee can is you, you just forget about it. You lock it away, you know, put it in a vault somewhere and just don't don't think about it. And that's sort of what what he did with Motorola. And there are fund managers that have implemented approaches that resemble that coffee can idea, uh, which I really love. Um, but it's very difficult as a money manager to do that, I think. 
Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Toby, but it, it's it's hard because if if a stock gets to eighty eight percent of your portfolio, your fortunes are tied to that stock. Yeah, your fortunes are tied to that stock, and any incoming investor is is uh, you know you're, they're basically buying that that single security, and it it so you're going to have a more volatile approach. And so the nature, the reason why and this this gets more to a fundamental, um, you know, sort of the concept of edge i think a, a lot about this is um in in investing volatility is something that almost every investor tries to mitigate to a certain degree and um and it's very difficult to do that and it's understandable why people want to mitigate volatility volatility can be painful um and we're you know we're coming off a stretch here where we've we've gotten a, a healthy dose of that and it, it it is interesting because uh, in the in the public equity markets, volatility is just the nature of the beast. So trying to to mitigate that is a very difficult thing. And I think in most cases, it's an impossible feat. The, it probably the, the reduces way, returns too. Ex- I was just going to say that the way to reduce volatility is to sacrifice returns. And so uh, the sort of the the converse of that is the the way the way to produce great results in the stock market uh requires the price of volatility that's sort of the price of great long-term results is the willingness to to take volatility so there are some fund managers that have have um have done that successfully uh ted wetchler is one who he uh you know he he before he started to work for berkshire he ran a fund that did phenomenally well in a decade where the stock market did literally zero. Um, I think he started his fund in 2000 and he wrapped it up in 2010. And that decade was essentially a lost decade for the S&P 500. But he did, I think, 25% returns or something during that decade. It was just an incredible stretch. And it was largely due to two stocks that he bought in the very early years. One was DeVita and one was WR Grace. And same sort of thing. I mean, he bought those, they were big positions at the beginning, but they became huge positions. I think when he wound up his partnership, it, uh, one of the two was 50% of the portfolio. So I don't know if he, tri- I don't really know the details. I don't know if he trimmed it along the way, but it became much bigger than his cost basis. And a large part of his returns were due to those two decisions that he made early on. So a number of lessons in there. You don't need that many great ideas to, to produce great results. And when you find the great ideas, you, uh, you, you should stay with them as as long as possible, um, but it's it's difficult to to run uh, a fund that way because people are uh, sensitive to volatility, and and naturally you're going to have more volatility as your concentration level increases. And you've also got the problem that it's got to be run continuously with an eye towards what is coming in the future for every investor who's not not just because the investors are incoming, but because you you, you don't sort of live on your past record. You're you're always trying right. to position for what's what's coming in the future. Exactly, and it's yeah, it's it's difficult to do because in, in the short run, and I would define the short run as one year, two years, three years, even. It's you know, I don't think anyone can outperform every year um, consistently for for many many years. I think you you have to. Uh, I, I I mean, if you run, uh, I guess. You know, Jim Simons did that, so maybe it is possible. Maybe you can come up with a strategy, Toby. You're a quant guy, so you know it's possible for you. I'm a uh, value guy who does some quantitative <laughs> stuff. The quants, the quants don't. The quants won't have me. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's um, uh, it, it to me, it, it's again the the price of long term results is the willingness to withstand volatility and underperformance. Right, volatility is sort of a euphemism. It's underperformance in the short run is the price that you need to pay to get great outperformance in the long run. So, unless you want to hug the S and P, um, you know, to produce results that are significantly better than the S and P, by definition, you're going to have to do something differently than the S and P. And sometimes, unfortunately, that means you know, hopefully, over the long run, differently means good, but in the short term, differently can sometimes mean bad. <laughs> Can I talk to you about a few of the positions that you've written about publicly? So Markel and Berkshire. Sure. Um, I think they've both got unusually cheap recently, um, and that the the businesses are, as you say, 
maybe a little bit more tied to the fortunes of the economy than than other businesses, but still both uh, exceptional balance sheets run by exceptional managers um, with an eye to the very long term. Markel, of course, is an $11, $12 billion company. Berkshire's a $440 billion company, so Markel, and run by a 58-year-old uh, rather than a 90-year-old, so a much longer runway. But can you just in talk through those positions and, and where you see them now? Yeah, they're both really great companies. I don't happen to own either of them right now, um, but they do. You know, Berkshire uh, appears to me to be cheaper than I think it's ever been since 2009. Um, what's interesting is, and this is something I, you know, as I as I watched the the meeting um, at the CenturyLink which was just sort of an odd experience. I don't know if you watched yeah. Buffett's annual meeting, but he's, he's in the century link with like, like five people and the place is just totally empty. Uh, so, you know, very conducive to social distancing in that particular uh, venue, but it was very odd that he, so he said a couple of things. One is he, you know, obviously the, the takeaway was he seems quite bearish on the uh, stock market and the economy I've never seen um, him like that before. He's always, to me, extremely optimistic. He's yeah. He seems extremely. He 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 has been optimistic. I would say for the last probably I don't know fifteen years. He was very optimistic during the last crisis. Um, one of the things he said, you know, he he had the never bet against America theme, which he which I think is absolutely right. In fact, I was reading uh, this book by Alan Greenspan um, just this, or I'm reading it currently, and. This, this sounded like something Buffett would would cite the statistic, but you know, in 1776, I think there were three or four million people here in the U.S. and the output of per capita per head of of that group of people was about four dollars a day in 2020 dollars. So in current dollars, our our GDP per capita essentially was was around four dollars a day, and you know now we have 330 million people and. And the output is 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 around one hundred and thirty dollars a day or something in that ballpark. So, you know, we've seen um, what is that a thirty-two fold increase in real GDP per capita? It just shows you the power of of the 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 productivity, or just shows you the productivity gains that we've achieved and the standard of living increases that we've had in this country over a relatively. Um, in the scope of history, a relatively brief period of time. So I think Buffett's right. Never bet against America. The tailwind is too great. But yeah, he he definitely seems uh, cautious to say the least. But I, you know, I was thinking about it. He has been bearish in the past. He was bearish in 1999. He gave a famous talk in Sun Valley and was essentially booed off the stage when he gave that talk. Um, is that know, true? I think literally, but I mean, people were in in, in uh, snowball. Um, the book by Alice Schroeder, she she opens the book, I think, or very early in the book has a section where, you know, a lot of the technology guys were there and they were kind of, uh, you know, whispering under their breath as Buffett was warning about the lofty heights of the stock market at that time. So I think he predicted that stocks would return like 4% a year over the next decade. And that actually proved to be optimistic. People thought it was dire and they thought it was, uh, you know, way too pessimistic. If you looked at public opinion polls in 1999, People were expecting 13% returns, 15% returns, you know, over the next decade, like they just saw in the previous decade. And um, when Buffett said 4%, it was just a, a way out of consensus view. And again, that that decade turned out to be uh, w even worse than that prediction. Um, so I think he was bearish in, in 99. Um, and he, I think he was bearish in the mid 80s during the, the merger boom. So in Lowenstein's book, um, he... There, there's a spot in which is the first bio, which was written in the mid '90s. Um, there's a there's a a few chapters that talk about the merger boom and, and stock prices started getting out of control because uh, at that time companies were trading. So coming out of the bear market in the early '80s, companies were trading well below replacement value, and we had significant inflation, and so real estate, real assets were, were appreciating in nominal terms. And you had, um, um, 
Volcker, the, the Fed chairman, sort of famously broke the back of inflation, and then you had interest rates coming down. And it led to cheaper money, and it, there were a number of factors that kind of led to this merger um, bonanza. And it inflated stock prices to a level where I think Buffett just became uncomfortable. So he didn't make, if you go back and read his, um, look at his, his annual letters from the mid-80s, I don't think he bought a single security between 19, a single stock between 1984 and 1987. And so there was like a two or three year, maybe it was two year period, 85 to 87. He didn't do much of anything. And he wound um, up his fund too, I guess, in that was 69, right? The, the fund. Exactly. So he so, must have been quite yeah. bearish then too. Yeah, I think he was bearish in the late 60s and he was, he was bearish in the mid 80s. Um, in fact, he actually sold stocks in a, in a pension fund. And again, this is in the Lowenstein book, um, which is kind of remarkable. But he actually sold stocks prior to the crash. Not, a, he, I don't think he sold a lot of. He didn't sell his positions, uh, his, his core positions or anything. But he he sold some some smaller positions that were um, sort of in some of the pension funds that Berkshire's insurance subsidiaries managed um, prior to the crash. Because I think he was worried about the uh, the the level of the markets. Um, of course, then he was buying hand over fist after the crash of 87. And, uh, and then I think that was really the point where he became more of the buy and hold forever. So he bought Coca-Cola, I think in 87 or 88. And, you know, that was really the first uh, Washington Post he's never sold, but there have been some others, but really that was the beginning of what I would call the current, uh, Warren Buffett mantra, which is sort of buy these stocks and hold them forever. Um, and and of course that doesn't hold true for every position because he's sold he he still sells things when he makes a mistake. It's one of the the best, the most underrated aspects of Buffett I think is his ability to change his mind when he's wrong and he, he evidenced that with the airline sales. Um, IBM. But yeah, so, yeah, I, IBM, um, Tesco, the grocery store in uh, the UK, which is a relatively smaller position. He sold those, so he he does sell things I think when he when he realizes he made a mistake. But um, but yeah. He seems he seems bearish, um, but yeah. Back, I guess back to Berkshire itself as a stock. One of the things that was interesting about the meeting is he stopped buying back shares in March, which was really surprising because um, he has always said that he's always sort of benchmark intrinsic value uh, somewhat to book. So it, it, it's it's always he's always he's always sort of tethered his estimate of intrinsic value to book value in some way. And he's, he's adjusted that slightly over the years as book value. has It's gone up, right? He, it's gone up. Right. And then, and he's more recently, the, the last pronouncement was basically, we're going to ignore book value. We're going to make it our own assessment of that, which to me said, it's going to be even higher than 1.3 times book or whatever it had been in the past. Right. And, and that makes sense because, you know, the railroad that he bought, in 2009 for 26 billion is probably worth 100 billion today but the assets are still held on the books at the price that he paid in 2009 so it it, it certainly makes intuitive sense that book value has become less um tied to intrinsic value but he what's what's um i guess unique about this particular time is he was buying shares in january and february at 1.3 times book and then he stopped buying at a level that got as low as I think 1.15 or so by my estimates. Um, and it's hard to know exactly what it was, but just sort of adjusting for the, the, the markdown in his $250 billion stock portfolio. And, and you can kind of get a, a rough uh, estimate of what the price to book ratio was in March at the bottom of the market. And so my conclusion on that whole thing is I think Berkshire is extremely cheap, but I think Buffett is, cautious because I think he he doesn't want to see the the boat that he's spent 50 years building start to develop holes you know when he's 90 years old uh, you know I, I just he's he's said many times in the past he's talked about all all sorts of different debacles like the, the LTCM debacle in the late 90s was uh, a famous example of of um, you know sort of greed gone haywire or uh greed on steroids or something where le so much leverage was used by extremely smart people um, to produce more money that they didn't need. You know, he's got this quote that basically says, you know, you don't, once you're already rich, you don't need to, 
to, to get rich again, basically. And so I think the issue with Berkshire right now is he, he, he could, and this is just my complete speculation. I don't know that this is the case, but I think he could be looking at the environment and seeing potential for, uh, significant litigation in, in um, business interruption insurance, um, potentially workers' compensation, which Berkshire is a big underwriter of, um, and and I think like there have been some court. In fact, there was one court case in in France last week where AXA is going to have to basically the, the French court ruled that they they're going to have to to reimburse certain restaurants for two months of revenue, um, and so you know I think if you if you start to violate contract law. And even if it's clear that these contracts do not, you know, pandemic is uh, a pandemic is uh, it's carved up is carved out. You know, it, it's if if you're just gonna if you're just gonna start to override that, then then uh, who knows? How do you handicap that? Who knows what the losses could be? I mean, it could be a hundred billion. And um, you know, I think Buffett has said before that Berkshire is is fit to withstand a two hundred and fifty billion dollar hurricane season. Or even more, and which would be multiples of the worst hurricane. I, I forget what the damage Katrina caused, but it would be multiples of that. And Berkshire wouldn't even see its see any hit to its capital. So it's it's an extreme fortress, and I think I think it. I don't think there's any doubt it still is an extreme fortress. But I think when you have the uncertainty of the pandemic, possible litigation, it's hard to know what the uh, what the claims will end up being at the when the dust settles from this, and he said at the meeting the other thing he kind of said um, it didn't get a lot of publicity, but I, I think he he uh, he tipped his hand a bit when he said there's no law that says a, a major storm can't come during a pandemic, right? So if you have a Katrina this summer and you combine it with all of the uh, the the possible uh claims from the pandemic it could be it could be sort of a once in a 500 year flood and i think he just wants to be prepared for that and i think he probably views that as a a tail risk that's probably got one or two or three percent or even even lower odds but i don't you know he said before that he doesn't want to take even a one percent chance of something bad happening so i i think that's more likely the reason why he wasn't more aggressive in buying stocks um, but that's just my, as opposed to him thinking that there might be another leg down or there might be another opportunity. You think it's more of a, it's more of a, the risks that he's seeing now. Yeah. I, I really don't think he's timing the market. I could be wrong on that. Um, you know, the other school of thought is he's close to Bill Gates and I've been following Bill Gates. You know, the blog that he writes has been very interesting in learning about the epidemiology of this virus, but I don't think, I, I mean, it's possible he's he's looking at it and saying there could be another leg down, but um, when you have when you have 137 billion in cash, uh, for him not to buy, you know, not to use 10% of that to buy stocks is quite surprising. It, you know, it, it would be it would be abnormal for him not to be buying when when the S and P is down 35% and. And you could be buying stocks that you liked. You can buy I mean, your own stock. Buy your own stock, right? If you liked your stock at 210, why aren't you buying it at 160? The the idea that the the intrinsic value, you know, he said, somebody asked him that and his, his answer was the price to intrinsic value hasn't changed. I found it a little confusing when he said that, honestly. I wasn't it, sure whether he was referring to 210 or, or, or closer to the bottom. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, keep going. it... it yeah, well, that that confused me as well because he, the price to book, you know, the, it's hard to to reconcile that because the price to book was lower in March than it was when he was buying shares in January. So, um, you know, it just it tells you that either his view of intri the intrinsic value of the business itself has gone down, and that certainly could be the case. The pandemic was a game changer, and so you know maybe the railroad is worth less, maybe the utilities are worth less. Although that's hard to imagine because the utility is more of a a recurring cash flow business and the intrinsic value of any asset doesn't change all that much by what happens this year it it, ha it changes a lot by what happens over the next 5 to 10 years but you know a downturn in earnings a cyclical downturn in earnings doesn't change 
the values by all that much, yet stock prices were down, you know, 35% on average and up to 50%. So it's it's hard to reconcile that. The only explanation is he believed that book value was overstated or, or intrinsic value had, had gone down. The, the explanation that I like the most is that if you introduce, uh, if you have a range of outcomes and you have some valuation that's based on a range of outcomes, if you introduce a new outcome or you put some more weight on the lower end of that spectrum, that will naturally pull down your intrinsic value estimate. And that seems to be the way that Buffett thinks. He doesn't want any possibility of the thought having too much weight in the lower end of that spectrum of outcomes manifesting. So he's always trying to avoid the worst possible outcome rather than trying to capture the best possible outcome. Yeah, I, I think that's it. And that's sort of what we were talking about with the, the pandemic risk is, you know, when you introduce that new risk, however remote that risk is, it's going to have some um, element of, of, lowering your your intrinsic value and so if there's if there's a risk of a hundred billion dollar uh industry-wide claim then you have to you have to account for that and and really i think that's what i don't don't think he's doing anything fancy in terms of uh uh, trying to to get too precise with this i think he's just saying hey you know there'll be more times to buy stocks i want to make sure that the uh the the painting that i've spent my entire life painting or you know putting together uh doesn't doesn't uh start to develop uh you know cracks uh and so i think he's just more thinking about the downside and and then the you know the other side of it is private business fallout hasn't occurred yet so uh, in terms of private deals he just hasn't had enough um opportunities so he sort of lamented the fact that the fed came in I, well he didn't lament the fact he was front run a little bit by the fed where previously yeah. they've performed that role yeah. for bigger businesses yeah exactly i mean he he uh he he has sort of played the role of jp morgan um the man uh jp morgan famously bailed out the financial system in 1907 and and buffett sort of did that in 2008 uh, uh not exactly but you know he was able to provide capital whereas the fed you know it took the fed uh, six months or so in 2008 to to really enter the picture um they did some minor things in the fall of 08 um well they did some major things in the fall of 08 but compared to what they did this time it's uh it's pretty remarkable what they've done so i was just looking at the fed's balance sheet just last week and it's you know they've 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 put three trillion dollars into the financial markets in six weeks it's been it's been i mean it, it has absolutely been unprecedented despite the the overuse of that term in the last couple of months, it's it really has been remarkable what they've done. So, yeah, I think I think Buffett has always been uh, he's always lamented private equity as a competitor, and now he's got the Fed, and so it's, it's a tough it's a tough game for him. So, um, but Berkshire itself is a stock. We've been chatting about the company, but the stock itself does look cheap. Um, I think the reality for Berkshire is it's it exists on the far left side of that barbell that I described earlier, and it's I don't think it's I think there are better ideas out there than Berkshire Hathaway as a stock investment, but it's a great company, and it's. How, how do you think about Markel in that context? Markel, I think, uh, is uh, a, a, Markel is a great company. It's run by a great uh, CEO, Tom Gaynor, and. Um, you know, I've had the chance to visit Markel. I've met with Tom. He's a great guy. He's an excellent steward of capital, shareholder capital, and and it's going to continue to do very well. I think um, it, it it operates a similar business. Obviously, it's in the insurance business, and it has started to branch out into um, private businesses. They have a segment called Markel Ventures, which is sort of their uh, wholly owned subsidiary businesses. And that is a very difficult business, I think. What Buffett has built at Berkshire has been has always amazed me because I'm not quite sure how he has been able to assemble a collection of companies that have been ever growing. You know, the, the growing size of these companies have been ever increasing over the years. You know, one of the largest railroads in the country in 2009, and and yet they have continued to operate at a high level even after they've sold the Berkshire, which is not typically the case with a conglomerate. Typically, when when you acquire a business, um, 
there are exceptions. There are some companies that have done very well at this, but my experience, my observation, when I look at conglomerates, they tend to be, uh, there tends to be a lot of fat inside of that conglomerate. And there tends to be businesses that are not operating on all cylinders, so to speak. And so Berkshire has really been a remarkable thing. I think it's very difficult to do. So I don't, think Markel, um, I, I don't want to, I wouldn't bet against Markel, but I think it's going to be tougher to replicate what Berkshire has done. I think it's much more, I would think of Markel much more of an, as an insurance company and much less of a Berkshire baby, so to speak. Um, I've never really put Markel in that bucket. I've always thought the secret sauce of Markel is, is the simple, uh, the simple equation of taking float, taking a profitable insurance company and, and using that as as a way to invest in permanent duration securities, which are stocks. And very few insurance companies do that. Berkshire does it, Markel does it. There are maybe one or two other examples of insurance companies that that do that to a certain extent, but those two do it very well. And Tom Gaynor, his genius is not in being a stock picker, it's in using that simple equation of, hey, if I have permanent capital and I invest 80, you know, permanent capital is the equity capital, I have a profitable insurance business that's not going to require more capital um, and I can grow the float over time and I never have to touch the equity, then the equity should be invested in permanent duration security. So instead of getting, you know, two or 3% in a bond portfolio, you can get seven or 8% by investing in what essentially could be an S and P 500 fund. Now he has historically done slightly better than that, but, he certainly hasn't performed the way Buffett has. I don't think he ever intended to because he runs a very diversified basket of stocks, whereas Buffett was a true, you know, Buffett started as a true stock picker and and then sort of backed into an insurance company, whereas Markel is an insurance company through and through. And it's a very good insurance company. It's one of the best insurance companies in the world. Um, and so that's the secret sauce is just simply taking the float and the inherent leverage in that model and then buying stocks. And so instead of getting a return on equity that's 10, you get a return on equity that's closer to 13 or so. And that's why they've been able to compound their book value over time is because they've added, you know, three or four hundred basis points to the return just through that simple formula. So that's I, I think that will continue and it'll continue to be a great, great business. And you're right. It does have a longer runway. So it's um, so I don't own it right now, but I love the business. It remains on the watch list. And at times it gets fairly cheap. I appreciate the very thoughtful discussion, John. We're coming up on time. If folks want to follow along or get in contact with you, how do they how do they do that? Yeah, they can um, they can visit my website, which is sabercapitalmgt.com and uh, they can read um, the writing that I posted and I have all the archives up there so they can they can read my thoughts on investing there and then um, you know, they can find my email address there as well. And what's and your I, Twitter handle? Twitter is, uh, that's a good question, Toby. It's John um, Huber 72. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll link to it in the I mean, show actually, notes. I, you know, I, I use Twitter. I, I don't, I'm not a, like a, a frequent poster on Twitter, but I'm, I, I do post uh, things from time to time. Every few days I'll post something that's interesting, but yeah, I do use Twitter as a, as a resource for uh, uncovering news and uncovering information. So you can find me on there as well. Well, I appreciate the time. John Huber, Sabre Capital Management. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Toby. Thanks for having me on. Really, really enjoyed it. My pleasure. (laughs) 